0: Welcome to Jury Duty, I'm your host, Chris Terracone. This is a special bonus report on Season 7 of Jury Duty as we cover the retrial of Danny Masterson on sexual assault charges. On today's episode, we present a conversation with blogger Tony Ortega about his coverage of pretrial proceedings and jury selection in the Masterson retrial. That's all coming up right after the break. Last December, we covered the jury's announcement that they were deadlocked on all three charges of rape against Danny Masterson. Today, we begin our coverage of Masterson's retrial with jury duty creator Carrie Antholis and Underground Bunker blogger Tony Ortega, discussing Ortega's coverage of pretrial proceedings and jury selection in that retrial. Ortega, you may recall, was a guest on this podcast during and after the last trial, and his coverage of that trial was generally recognized as unparalleled in its comprehensiveness and insightfulness. Here is Kerry's interview with Tony Ortega.
2: Tony Ortega, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me on, Kerry.
2: Tony, would you tell us a bit about yourself and about who you report for and what you do on an everyday basis? Sure. I'm
1: the former editor-in-chief of The Village Voice in New York City. I was editor-in-chief there from 2007 to 2012. Today, these days, I write for Rolling Stone, Daily Beast, but primarily for my own Substack, .substack TonyOrtega.substack.com. You know, back in 2011, when I was at The Voice... I gave myself the job of beat reporter for Scientology. And I don't know if that was a smart decision, Carrie, but I, for some reason, I just felt it was a role that, that wasn't being filled. And I've been doing it ever since. I've been writing daily about Scientology since then, and primarily for my own website. And so, you know, for, for that reason, something like the Danny Masterson trial last fall Was pretty much you know my Super Bowl you know I mean that that's it's got everything it's got the celebrity it's got crime but it's got a lot of Scientology so I had to be there that ended up in a mistrial so now I'm back for the retrial and this time the court actually asked me to be pool reporter on jury selection that that was this week and I said sure because uh, I mean they they've seen my work and. What I try to do um, is not just provide for the other reporters a sense of what happened in court, but also my readers are curious uh, since there is there are no cameras in this case. I know that there are a lot of my readers that maybe are not so familiar with how cases work in American courts. I have a lot of overseas readers, and they really appreciate the level of detail I give them, the interaction between the judge, the attorneys, the selection of the jury. And so that's why I'm providing so much detail. I just hear a lot from readers how much they appreciate that. So uh, that's the long story is that I'm, I'm a journalist. I primarily work for myself. Lately, I've also been writing for Rolling Stone, and I'm just covering this trial as... Completely as I can.
2: And had you ever covered a trial before last year's Masterson trial?
1: Yeah, I've been trying, you know, one of the sort of focuses in my Scientology coverage has been litigation of various forms. So I've been out to Los Angeles for trials. I've been to Texas. I've been to Florida. And so this was, you know, just one of many that I've been to. Probably the most high stakes trial that I've been to, though, for a Scientology story.
2: Got it. So what do you think is different for this second trial? Yeah, there are a
1: number of interesting differences that showed up this first week. I'll just take them in order. I'm not sure how important they are. But one of the first things I noticed was that Sean Hawley has joined the defense team. Now, Sean Hawley's is a very high-profile Los Angeles attorney. She was a member of the O.J. Simpson Dream Team. She became a part of Danny Masterson's legal team back in the fall of 21, but she did not Take part in the first trial because she got busy with this secret Trevor Bauer Dodgers baseball arbitration last year in Washington, D.C. So she disappeared from the case. Philip Cohen was the primary defense attorney last time with co-counsel Karen Goldstein. This time, Sean Hawley has showed up and she and Philip Cohen have let the judge know they're co-counsel. I don't know exactly what impact that will have on the case, but she's a much more high profile attorney than Philip Cohen is, so that's interesting to me that the defense team has changed. Another big difference, there was a lot of Scientology in the first trial, but Judge O'Mado did not allow the prosecution to bring in an expert. She said in the first trial she thought that these victims, these women who were Scientologists, and just real quick, Danny's facing three counts of forcible rape against three different women in incidents that happened between 2001 and 2003. He's a Scientology celebrity. All three of the women of those three women were Scientologists at that time, but are not today. And so Judge Olmedo in the first trial just said that she thought that these three women could testify to the Scientology policies that had prevented them from coming forward sooner. And they really didn't need an expert to explain further. Well, this next trial, she has changed her mind about that. And now that she saw how that first trial went, She's saying that, yeah, the jury could use some help understanding these policies, because the policies are that Scientology you know, tells members they cannot turn in a fellow Scientologist to the police. And Scientology argues and says that's not the case, but it's right there in black and white, Kerry. It's right there in their book. And I've talked to many, many Scientologists who all say the same thing. Yes, we're told not. We cannot go to the police. So that's a reason why it took so long for these women to come forward. One came forward immediately, but the others took a long time. And so Judge O'Mato is going to allow a Scientology expert to come into this case and testify about those policies. Her name is Claire Headley. She's a former Sea Org official. I've interviewed her for many years. She's very, very knowledgeable about Scientology, really Nice person, too. We found out this week that the defense is countering that by listing their own Scientology witness on their witness list. And they have named Claire's stepfather, who is estranged from her and and has been, you know, in Scientology, there's this policy called disconnection. When somebody leaves Scientology and, you know, speaks up against it the way Claire has, everybody in her family has to break ties with her. So she hasn't seen her mother or stepfather for many, many years. So... You know, in a real interesting surprise move, the defense has now named her own stepfather as their Scientology expert. Now, is this just an intimidation move against Claire? Are they really going to call her stepdad during the trial? You know, the experts tend to come later in the the case and testimony, Carrie, so it may be a while before we find out how that plays out. But other than that, the other thing I noticed was those people who were following my coverage of first trial noticed that it seemed like the judge was trying to push things along to get things done by Thanksgiving. And it seemed like the prosecution was paring down its witness list to accommodate that. And then there was a mistrial. And I know a lot of my readers were saying to me, Hey, maybe the next time judge Almeida won't pressure them like that. And they'll take the time to really lay out their case. So I thought that was an interesting suggestion. And I, I was wondering if maybe there would be more witnesses the second time and a longer trial, but the, prosecution witness list is actually a little shorter this time so i don't know what that says exactly but generally they're the same there's a few differences the biggest difference in the prosecution witness list is now there's a fifth accuser besides the three women who are alleging forcible rape and danny's facing those charges there was a fourth woman who was allowed to testify in the first trial she allowed me to name her she's an actress named trisha vesey She says she was raped by Danny back in 1996 at a Caspar rap party after filming a movie. She was allowed to come in and testify to that, even though Danny's not facing those charges. She's referred to as what's called a past bad acts witness to establish sort of a more consistency of what Danny's accused of. Well, now there's going to be a fifth accuser. A woman that I wrote about uh, in Toronto, she had said something on Twitter about being raped by Danny, so I contacted her. She did an interview with me last, uh, gosh, I think it was in 2021. Her name is Kathleen Jenkins, and she's now coming down from Toronto to be a fifth woman alleging that she was raped by Danny. Her allegations of the year 2000. The defense fought that. They did not want either one of those women to testify in the retrial, but they're both coming.
0: We resume the conversation between Carrie Antholis and Tony Ortega with Carrie's question to Tony about the status of the civil trial related to the criminal charges against Danny Masterson.
2: There's also a civil trial going on around some of these accusations. Can you tell us a bit about that and update us on what has happened to that case since the last criminal trial?
1: Sure. So uh, Danny... I first broke the news that Danny was being investigated by the LAPD in March, 2017. And right from the beginning, my very first story, I mentioned the women were really unhappy with how the LAPD was handling it. They replaced the original detective with a newer detective, and that seemed to get things going, but it still was taking a long time for any charges, 2018, 2019. By 2019, these women were pretty frustrated that the the DA hasn't done anything. So they went ahead and filed a civil case at that point in August 2019, not over the rapes specifically, but over the harassment they say they've been going through since they, you know, went forward to the LAPD. They claim they've been surveilled, their communications have been hacked. They even allege things like that their pets have been poisoned, okay? They are suing Danny Maston and the Church of Scientology saying that, you know, Scientology has coordinated this campaign of harassment against them. That case initially, Scientology, they made motions to force it into arbitration, and a judge agreed initially. Basically, the point of that is they're saying, look, you signed contracts as Scientologists. All Scientologists have to sign them to get courses. Those, those contracts contain arbitration clauses in which you agreed that if you had any grievance with Scientology, You would have to take it to our own internal form of arbitration. It's not like independent arbitration. The panel that hears your complaints has to be three Scientologists in good standing. All the people that this has happened to say it's totally unfair. But they got an appeals court to overturn that because the appeals court pointed out that the things they're alleging, like the pets being poisoned, being stalked and all that, that all happened after they left the church. So the, the court said that those contracts should not apply. So that case is active. However, they, they have it on hold until after the criminal case, which I think is really pretty common in these sort of situations, Carrie. But So that, that case is just basically on hold. But Scientology has already said that once that case gets going again, they're going to file an anti-slap motion. And so that, that'll be the next big step. In that case, Scientology is going to claim that this lawsuit is, you know, a frivolous you know, attempt to shut down their free speech or something. It's, it's kind of ironic that Scientology would be using anti-slap if you know the history of that statute. But I'm sorry, I'm kidding. The point is, yes, there's a civil case. It's really interesting because it's about the harassment. Also, let me just point out that if Danny is convicted of these forcible rapes and has to go to prison, the women would then have a year to file a lawsuit against him for raping them. They can't sue him for rape right now because of the length of that's been since the incidents. But there is a California law that if he is convicted, they will then have a year to sue him for raping them.
2: Just one more question before we get into jury selection. I remember that you were somewhat critical, or if not critical, you had some questions about the prosecution's strategy in the first trial. Could you recap for us what your thoughts were about that strategy and what you're looking for to see if the prosecution approaches this trial somewhat differently?
1: Sure. Well, let me let me just be clear that that was in hindsight. As the trial was going on, I thought they were doing a good job. And I made it clear in my reporting that I was talking to reporters, some of whom felt that the prosecution was doing a great job. Other reporters who felt that the prosecution was not doing a good job, and that I was reserving judgment. I It seemed to me like, I mean, the women are really passionate. I mean, the women's testimony just is devastating. But it turned out then there was a mistrial. And my personal feeling was, especially after, you know, Deputy DA Reinhold Mueller had talked to the jurors, they came out and said that they really ignored the Scientology aspect. They really ignored the, the expert who talked about, you know, why women act a certain way, and that it has something to do with being raped by somebody you know, rather than by a stranger, that they had basically ignored all that. So my feeling was that where the prosecution could have done a better job was that they could have presented a better narrative, that defense attorney Philip Cohen was very good at creating some doubt, and that they needed to shore things up, the prosecution needed to shore things up by just trying to be a little better at piecing things together and creating a story for the jury. Because the... Look, the jury's sitting there for weeks and weeks. They want to they want to hear a, sto- a coherent story. I know it's difficult in a trial where you know witnesses come in and witnesses go, and, and it kind of comes in piecemeal. But I just feel like that the prosecution needed to make it hang together better. Now, this time, I mean, we'll see. I don't I don't really know. We'll get our first taste of it on Monday with opening statements. But I, I hope that the, the sort of issues that were in the first trial are things they can they can address.
2: As we move into discussing jury selection, you and I had a conversation about one of the jurors in the last trial with whom I believe you did an interview. And in retrospect, it seemed that that juror may have had some issues with how honest he was with the court. Can you recap that situation for us and Tell us how that may have framed what you're looking for in these jurors as you're reviewing the jury selection as the pool reporter.
1: Yeah, uh, that guy should never have been on the jury. I mean, it's just a shame because Chris Shelton and I had a unique opportunity to interview him. We interviewed him. At that point, we only knew his first name. But I knew that he was the jury foreman because I was in the courtroom with him. So, so I knew he was who he said he was. And I didn't ask him how he voted. I just wanted to know what was the dispute in the jury liberation room that had produced the mistrial. And so so I thought it was a good conversation. Well, it turned out that uh, once we got his full name later, when his his name was submitted on an affidavit, that it turned out that his son of the same name as Junior had a sex conviction. So Chris interviewed him again later and said, look, it says right there on the form, the questionnaire, there's three times you're asked if anybody in your family has any criminal convictions and you didn't divulge that. Why not? And his answer was that his son had been out of his life for like 25 years or something. And so he thought he didn't need to divulge that. Well, that's just wrong. I mean, I I doubt that he would be, you know, charged with anything like that because it's kind of an excuse, but he's just wrong. He should have revealed that and he should never have been on that jury. And here's the weird thing, Kerry, is that people lie to get out of juries, not to get on them. You know, he claimed to have some kind of connection to law enforcement. I think there was just sort of a cop arrogance to this guy that felt he wanted to get on that jury and, you know, part of it, whatever. But so that's a shame. When you know, we'll never know how much of an influence he had on the others. I pointed out that there were a lot of votes for acquittal in that jury. And his was only, he only had three. But it's just a shame that he was in there. So that's the challenge now is how do you make sure that these new jurors aren't lying? And, you know, repeatedly, Judge Olmedo said to them this week, it's really important that you're honest in filling out these questionnaires. She said it numerous times. And then over two days of voir dire, the judge and these attorneys were asking them and pleading with them, is there anything you want to tell us, But ultimately, Carrie, you know, at some point, you just have to trust that these people don't have a connection to Danny Mastin, don't have a connection to the Church of Scientology, don't have any connections to law enforcement they haven't revealed, don't have any convictions that they're not, they're quiet about. I mean, at some point, you just have to trust them, I guess. I mean, they, both sides are given the name. In the last few days, I know those teams have been working hard to do internet research on them and try to make sure there's not somebody trying to do that. But we have 12 jurors now, and we have to hope that they haven't been lying to us.
2: Those of us who have been in the court a lot and have watched jury selection specifically have come to learn something that I've heard you report, which is that the trial actually begins during jury selection. Can you talk a bit about how these lawyers have already begun framing their cases During this jury selection process.
1: Right. So Wednesday, Judge Almeido quizzed every single juror individually and just tried to get some basic information about their connection to law enforcement, about whether they've got any issues with Scientology, that kind of thing. Then, but and and she had only given them a very limited description of the case, just that it's Danny Masterson he's facing three cases of forcible rape. The incidents were between 2001 and 2003. That's basically all the jurors were told. But then on Thursday, when the attorneys had a chance and Philip Cohen got to go first for the defense, you could see that although he is required to stay away from the details of the facts in the case, he's already starting to work on notions of the case. At this point, he's, he's supposed to be asking the jurors about them to try to figure out if any of them are inappropriate for the jury, but he's spending a lot of time defining presumption of innocence, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. He's, and he's starting to build in he he mentioned the words date rape. And I, my, um, My memory from the first trial was Judge Almeida had made sure nobody used that phrase and and that the witnesses had been admonished not to use that phrase for whatever reason. I'm not exactly sure why. But that right off the bat, Cohen was couching this as incidents of alleged date rape where the defendant is disagreeing with that notion. So he's already starting to define for them what are the ideas in the case if he's still staying away from the facts and then really going heavy on these ideas of presumption of innocence and beyond a reasonable doubt then when the prosecutors came on they were also trying to start getting ahead of some of the issues that were in the first trial so uh, deputy d.a Mueller, for example was already telling them look There is no DNA in the evidence in this case. You're not going to get that kind of corroboration. And Judge Omedo had said, one witness says something happened and you believe them. That's all the evidence you need to establish that fact. He's already trying to get ahead of the whole CSI thing that, oh, we're going to bring in DNA to prove that this happened. No, there is none. And then Deputy DA Ariel Anson was using some of her time to start getting into their minds the idea of spousal rape and that, the way she put it, that a couple could have sex 200 times, but on the 201st time, if the, the woman says no and the man forces himself, is that rape, even if they've had sex 200 times before? So she was out going around the room asking people how they felt about that. So in that way, you could see that both sides were starting to sort of present the ideas of the case, even if they couldn't talk about the facts of the case.
2: And how, in your observation, did the lawyers for each side use their peremptory strikes? What did you observe about how they made those choices of which jurors to exclude once the agreed upon jury challenges and jury excusals were done?
1: Right. Yeah. So first they went through the ones that both sides stipulated to for various reasons. And then we had you know, 12 people in the regular box and eight alternates. And now they've got peremptories. So now both, you know, they start to the prosecution and they can remove somebody for no reason whatsoever. And I was kind of surprised that right off the bat, the prosecution said, we're fine. (laughs) They were going to accept the panel as it was right off the bat. The defense, however, didn't like a few people that were on that. And so they started removing people. Once the defense started removing people, the prosecution started removing the new people that came in. So then we got, you know, both sides getting rid of people for a little while. It didn't. It wasn't that many. I was probably only six or seven on each side and then both were satisfied. And then we went through and did the same thing with the alternates. So it, it went pretty quickly and I couldn't tell you exactly what the issues were with the people they removed. They each had a jury consultant. And so not everything is done in front of me that, as the pool reporter, like, I know they're taking the questionnaires and they're scanning them rapidly, getting them into, you know, electronic form. I know that because I asked one of the DAs and they're building up little mini profiles. And I think they're doing internet research. So these jury consultants have, you know, a lot of information that I don't have because I don't see those questionnaires, but apparently they had built up, you know, so, so when somebody new comes in, they're like, Ooh, that's not good for us. Get the rid of that person. But it's hard to know exactly what they see. And I mean, some of the people, was very obvious. They, they, they had, you know, asked certain questions or they, you know, clearly seemed have to have problems with some of those basic concepts. And so you knew they were going to be gone. But other ones, it was hard to know. One person I noted subsequently was Megan Kudov, who's a terrific reporter, noticed that one of the jurors, she was looking at my notes. And juror number five was actually quizzed by Deputy DA Ariel Anson. Because she said that he had left a question blank on the questionnaire where it asked, do you know Danny Masterson? And so she asked him, do you know him? And he said, no, he just liked the show. And he talked about how talented Danny was as an actor. And then uh, she asked him, she said, well, but can you put that aside and be impartial? And he said, yes. They left him on. And remember, like I said, they initially weren't going to get rid of anybody. And he was on that initial twelve. So... I guess they're okay with a guy that said openly that he's a big fan of Danny Masterson, the actor. Uh, He's on the panel, so I. But you know, I've talked to people since then. Some attorneys have told me that no, that's okay. It's it's okay if they're a fan of the show. Once they hear about the man, they may change their mind about him. So that kind of thing. I'm certainly not an expert on jury selection.
2: Can you tell us what you know about the jury that's been selected in this trial?
1: Sure. So it's seven women and five men. Uh, There's a mix of ages and ethnicities, but I didn't have time to get those down. But like I said, I don't get to see the questionnaires. All I get to see are the questions Judge O'Mado asked. So they're very limited, but let me just go through them. So ju- juror one is a woman who has sat on juries before. Apparently her husband, uh, who passed away, had, been, had worked with both the LAPD and the Secret Service. And she, but she agreed that there were good and bad police and that she could judge police fairly. She said she could be fair. In seat two is juror 11. She's a woman. She works in environmental health and safety. She'd been exposed to Scientology just through the general media, but nothing specific. Juror 5 and seat three, like I said, was the man who said he was a big fan of Danny Madison's acting. Juror 8 and seat four is a woman who had been briefly on a civil jury. Juror 9 and seat five is a registered nurse, but she had not really been exposed to rape victims in her, you know, in her practice as a nurse. She'd been on a civil case. She had some knowledge of the Danny Masson case that she got through the news, and but not much. Jury 10 in C6 was a man who was on a criminal jury about 25 years ago that involved a gang kidnapping. And then she asked him about, about 30 years ago, apparently he personally had some brush with the law involving a traffic case, but she asked him if he could be fair and he said yes. I really didn't get anything. She really didn't say anything about juror 30 and seat 7, just that asked him if he could be fair, and he said yes. The woman in 8, juror 13, is works for the city of L.A., said she could be fair. Juror 15 and seat 9 is a woman who works at Santa Monica College. She was on a criminal jury 12 or 13 years ago that involved a bank robbery. He has some limited understanding about Scientology, just basically that it has celebrities. Juror 20 and seat 10 was a man whose significant other worked for the DWP, uh, and he said he could be fair. Juror 23 in seat 11 was a man who works in IT support for the L.A. Unified School District, is aware of Scientology's existence just because of their general presence in Hollywood, but otherwise said he could be fair, and juror 41 in seat 12 is a woman who does social work, and uh, it and, and does deal with individuals with health issues, but not necessarily victims of rape. And that's that's basically all I got from listening to Judge O'Medo. Like I said, they have a lot more information because they actually have the actual
2: questionnaires. As I recall, uh, you got in a little bit of hot water for something that you reported and that you overheard in open court and passed along to your listeners and readers. Can you tell us a little bit about that situation?
1: Sure. On Tuesday at a break between uh, jury panels, uh, defense attorney Sean Hawley asked for a sidebar. And Judge Almeida has said, by the way, that she really doesn't like sidebars and she she tries to limit them. But she allowed the four attorneys to go up. Now, at this time, we were between panels. And let me just explain. This courtroom was empty. It was Judge Almeida, her clerk, her court reporter, her bailiff, the four attorneys and me. I mean, the entire gallery was empty except for me sitting in the very back row. I was not leaning forward. I was not particularly trying to hear. But I couldn't help hearing Sean Hawley, who has a very resonant voice, in the sidebar discussing that there's material they had received from a grand jury investigation of Scientology, and they wanted a copy of the subpoena itself. And then Judge Almedo said, "Isn't this? Is, do we really have to do this in a sidebar. And the others said yes. And they kept talking about it. And I heard grand jury, grand jury several times. And I knew what they were talking about because I reported back in, I think, early 2022, mid-2022, that DA, Deputy DA Mueller, had brought in grand jury testimony of Marty Singer. That's when, you know, I'd heard about grand jury, carry, but I had never reported it because I didn't have any evidence of it. And that's when I first have evidence there is a grand jury looking into medicine and Scientology. Deputy Dave Mueller last year brought in actual testimony from it and said that they had been uh, impaneled to look at this since 2018. So I I knew that that's what they were talking about. And apparently the defense wants the actual subpoena that produced that testimony. So they went back into, they broke the sidebar, went back into open court. And the judge then said, okay, the defense wants this subpoena, but I don't think they're entitled to it. And she went through case law and that kind of thing. And then she turned to Mueller and she said, this proceeding we're talking about, is it ongoing? And Mueller said, yes, it is. And Carrie, then I realized what I was hearing was that, that was Mueller revealing that the grand jury that had started looking at Scientology in 2018 is still looking at Scientology today. And I knew that's a huge story. So I went ahead and wrote it up <laughs> and I published it. So after the lunch break, Sean Hawley asked to go into chambers. She didn't want a sidebar. She wanted to go into chambers. And so all four attorneys went into chambers. By that time there was another reporter sitting next to me, a friend of mine. And she said to me, I wonder what that's all about. And I said, I think I'm in trouble. (laughs) She said, no way. But sure enough, they came out and Judge Albedo said to Sean Hawley, so so this is in regards to material that was said in the sidebar, which ended up being published where? And Sean Hawley said, Mr. Ortega's blog. And so she, the judge turned to me and said, Mr. Ortega, what is said in sidebar is not to be published. I know voices carry, but I'm going to admonish you that you are not to publish what you hear might hear in the sidebar. As soon as she said the word admonished, Carrie, I was like, okay, no problem. I'll take a warning. I'm not going to, this is fine. I'm not going to, you know, argue it or anything like that. She asked me if I wanted to say anything. I just said, I said, no, thank you, your honor. And I have now been admonished. Now, I've since then, I've had some reporters come up to me and tell me they're really outraged. They feel that a reporter should be able to report anything said that they hear in open court. I really felt that my my readers, my listeners d- deserve to hear it. So I'll take the warning and I will try not to <laughs> hear, but Sean ollie has got to do something about her voice, man.
2: <laughs> well, Tony, I want you to know that we all appreciate your commitment to a free and open press and all the work that you're doing specifically on this trial and in all of your journalistic work. Why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you both online and in your podcasting?
1: Sure, so I'm now at TonyOrtega.substack.com
2: and if you sign up
1: for free emails, you'll get all of my reports from court. I put them out at every break during the day, during testimony, opening statements start Monday, and uh, you'll get three or four reports from me every day of, you know, I do my best to give a sense of, I'm not the court reporter. I'm not going to tell you every word that's said in court, but I'm doing my best to give a sense of the things that are said in court. And then at the end of the day, I'll put out a a summary video. Also, just TonyOrtega.substack.com. You'll see everything there.
2: Great. And we hope you'll come back periodically over the course of the trial to inform our listeners of what's going on.
1: Be happy to, Carrie. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Tony. Take care.
1: You
0: too. And with that, we conclude this bonus episode of Jury Duty, the trials of Weinstein and Masterson. Please stay tuned to this feed for continued coverage of the Masterson retrial and Starting in May, look for Season 8 of Jury Duty, covering the trial of Alex Murdoch for the murders of his wife and son. You can find Tony Ortega's writing and sign up for his email list at TonyOrtega.substack.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at TonyOrtega94. Also, if you'd like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page, You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you'll come
2: back for the next episode of Jury Duty.